Chapter Seven of An Exchange of Souls by Barry Payne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven. During the next fortnight, I saw a good deal of Myas and Miss Lade, and got to know the latter much better. I did not go to Knox Street every afternoon. Myas asked me to do so, but I went very often. One afternoon, Miss Lade spoke with some interest of a forthcoming play. This seemed to me to offer an opportunity, and I asked her if she and Myas would dine with me on the first night and come with me to the theater afterwards. "'I'm afraid I couldn't,' said Miss Lade. "'I have not got any evening dress, but it's very kind of you.' "'That kind of thing must come later,' said Myas. When we've finished our work, we'll come to you as often as you like. Good, I said. I'll tell the theater to postpone the production. Don't get angry with us, said Myas. At present, except for an hour or two in the afternoon, we are horribly unsociable. There is a kind of interest in life that shuts out all other interests. But the end will come soon now, won't it, Alice? "'Very soon,' said Miss Lade. She was standing against the window, and the pure beauty of her profile was a delight to one's eyes. Suddenly she exclaimed with ecstasy, "'Carter Patterson! They've sent it at last!' "'Good!' exclaimed Myas, and flew down the stairs. Miss Lade turned to me rather apologetically. "'It is some apparatus.' she said. We have been kept waiting a long time for it. Scientific instrument makers seem to be the slowest people in the world. Myas came panting into the room with a large box in his arms. They did not unpack it completely, but they took out one or two pieces and fitted them together. Miss Lade's joy over the contents of the box was quite real and unaffected. I doubted if her first evening dress would give her so much pleasure. The more I saw of Miss Lade, the higher my opinion of her became. She had great abilities, but even so, her acquirements and her advance during the last few months seemed to me miraculous. She still kept that almost childlike simplicity, which from the first I had appreciated in her. Her devotion to Myas was obviously of the most exalted kind, and her enthusiasm in the work was not less than his own. I could understand now what he meant when he told me that it would be absolute ruin if he began to make love to her. Afterwards he would have been unable to continue his work, or to conduct any experiment in which the least risk to her was involved. Nature would have forced its way. Passion was not suppressed, but it was postponed. When the work was done, there would be dinners and evening dresses, and there would be time for love. I got an impression that she understood all this. One afternoon I returned to St. James's Place on the top of a motor omnibus. On the seat in front of me were two old women with strident voices. They were discussing Mr. Valsame. I wouldn't go to him, said one of them, and I wouldn't call him into my house. 
not if there wasn't another doctor in England. "'Bit too fond of lifting the elbow, eh?' said the other. "'Yes, that's true enough, but that's not all.' She became confidential and dropped her voice. I was not greatly surprised. I knew that Vulsame drank, and my curiosity as to what else he did was not very keen. It was at the end of this fortnight, in the middle of the London season, and with countless engagements on hand, that I gave the whole thing up and went away. It was a sudden and overmastering impulse, which had occurred to me before, and will probably occur to me again. To my friends and acquaintances, I suppose that I seem a normal and cheerful bachelor of forty. That, perhaps, is what I am most of the time. Still, I have been through things of a kind that leave their mark. I was quite a young man when the doctors cut me off from the only profession that I could ever have loved. They stopped polo and hunting as well. For a while I was a good deal of an invalid, and that, I dare say, was a sound enough reason for the girl who threw me over and married a better man. My health is fairly good now, and I do most of the right things at the right time. I enjoy the society of my fellow men, and I think I can hold my own in any of the sports that my health has left open to me. I am not broken-hearted, and I am not a sentimentalist, but occasionally I get a sudden revulsion against the kind of life that I am leading. Its pleasures become an unmitigated bore. Its absolute uselessness and selfishness disgust me. Then I remember that, but for a whim of fate, I might have been engaged in an active profession, and possibly doing some good in the world. Just at this time, too, I recalled the girl who broke her engagement with me. Alice Lade reminded me of her a little, and I was not in the least in love with Alice Lade, but yet I regarded Myas with envy. He had at any rate managed to make some woman care very much for him. My mood at such times is not cheerful, and there is no reason why I should ask my friends to put up with it. Besides, I have found that quiet and solitude are the best cure for it. That is why some years ago I bought for half nothing a little cottage far up on a hill in Gloucestershire, ten miles from the nearest railway station. When I find that solitude and the simplicity of life there no longer please me, my cure is complete. I can go back and mix with my fellow men again. I never take my valet down with me to the cottage. An elderly couple have the charge of it, and they can do all that I require. When I am down there, I want nothing that reminds me of London. I keep a small car and have learned to drive it. The distance from shops and the station make it a necessity. I have the fishing rights over three miles of river. If I ever needed it, I could get some golf, but so far I have left it alone. I go down to my cottage to avoid my fellow men, not to mix with them. It may have been partly, perhaps, because I had seen so much lately of the work which Myas was doing, that this fit of disgust of my own life came on me. 
I got tired of taking so much care of such unimportant things. I got tired of hearing so much worthless talk, and of contributing my share to the sum of it. For an hour or two I was busy with telegrams and telephone, and by that time my man had packed my things, and the cab was ready to take me to Paddington. I did not, of course, let my friends know where I had gone. The cottage was my harmless secret. If I let my friends know, they would probably wish to come down and cheer me up, and that would be too depressing. I said that I was going to Paris. I took with me two books, or rather pamphlets, which were all that Daniel Myas had so far published. The first of these was entitled, a clinical study of the physical and psychical phenomena of somatic dissolution. Myas had often laughed at scientific jargon, but he admitted that he was a master in the use of it himself. This work had appeared originally in the American Journal of Abnormal Psychology and had attracted some little attention. The Lancet had dealt dutifully but severely with it. Much of it was simply Greek to me. I was never taught any science at school, and I did not know what a good deal of the jargon meant. But there were passages in it, notably where he summed up his conclusions in more popular language, which were wildly interesting. The other pamphlet had been privately printed since his arrival in England. It was called experimental observations on the continuity of the ego. I got on better with this. It was a most amazing little pamphlet. It was science plus religion and religion plus poetry. As any reader must have gathered, I am not much of an author myself, but I have read a good deal. And I think I do know good writing when I see it, I read that pamphlet more than once, and it increased my respect for Myas's abilities. I had a week of the most delightful quiet at my cottage. I did a good deal of gardening under the direction of old Wellsford. He is rather severe with me, and I think I like it. At any rate, it makes a pleasant change from the cat-like obsequiousness of my man in town. Wellsford is a great-nature student, too, and tells me and shows me much that is interesting. Everything in the garden has for him a distinct personality, and he speaks of flowers and vegetables very much as he would speak of human beings. I have heard him accuse potatoes of being obstinate. At about eleven one morning, as I was working in the garden, a telegram was brought out to me which had been forwarded on from St. James's place. It was signed, Laid, and there was nothing to tell me whether the mother or the daughter had sent it. It said, Please come here at once. I hesitated for a moment. I thought of telegraphing for further particulars, but the message seemed so urgent that I decided not to waste time on that. I sent Wellsford to get the car out, and hurried indoors to change my clothes. There was an express that I should just be able to catch. I drove myself, and left the car in a garage near the station. 
shortly after four i was in london i went first to a telephone office to tell my people at st james's place to expect me that evening and then as i had my latch key with me i drove to the entrance in durnford place my taxicab could not get quite up to the door as a dog-cart was standing there it was a seedy-looking dog-cart and apparently had not been washed for a week a wretched old horse stood dejectedly in the shafts at the horse's head was a groom in dusty and ill-fitting livery he was eating nuts and he stared at me curiously as if he wondered what i was doing there durnford place was very quiet that afternoon and the crack of the nutshells rang out loudly i was just about to pay my cabman when it occurred to me that after all he might perhaps be useful i told him to wait at this moment the garden door opened and mr vulsame came out he was drawing a pair of excessively ugly yellow gloves on to his fat hands he had changed if anything for the worse since the night i met him first his clothes were shabby and he looked unwashed and unkempt his expression was grave and troubled he spoke to me at once without offering to shake hands so you've come at last mr compton i came as soon as i got the telegram it was forwarded to me from london i was away in gloucestershire i see he said well i suppose i had better go in with you can you tell me what is the matter mr vulsame matter i thought you knew they should have told you in the telegram daniel myas is dead end of chapter seven